We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. So we'll begin with an introduction. I recently heard a recorded talk given by a Catholic layman where the speaker stated that the Catholic Church was the true church founded by our dearest Lord and that it was the best means or way of getting to heaven. The crowd listening to this particular talk was impressed by the apparent orthodoxy of this layman as he supposedly defended the notion of salvation being found in Christ and his church. But then the speaker went on to say that the Catholic Church was the easiest way of attaining eternal life, kind of like a Cadillac limousine smoothly taking her passengers through the pearly gates. But for the non-Catholic, he was left with a lesser means of transportation, according to this layman, perhaps traveling in a spiritual Yugo or a Pinto or even some rickety old moped. And at first hearing, the people in the crowd, the people in the audience, thought that this sounded very solid, but it's actually erroneous. The devil will allow plenty of truth, even 99% of the truth, if he can get people to deny just 1% of the truth. Others have stated that Christ and the church are but the privileged way to salvation. But the Roman Catholic Church is not just the best means of getting to heaven. She is the only means, the only way for a dogma of our holy faith, uh, an unchanging teaching, is extra ecclesiam nullisalus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. So to correct that layman's analogy, there's only one vehicle, one train, one boat that can transport men to the heavenly homeland. Is Pope Pius XI, Blessed Pius, I'm sorry, Blessed Pius IX, infallibly taught, he stated, it is to be held by faith that outside the apostolic Roman church, no one can be saved. That this church is the unique ark of salvation and that he who does not enter it will perish in the flood. Beautiful analogy using Noah's ark, right? Blessed Pius IX also stated, it is a sin to believe that there is salvation outside the church. Not only is it against the, the teachings of tradition, but it's actually a sin to even believe such a thing. And it's obvious, because if we believe that the Son of God, who is the invisible head of the church, Christ our Lord, is the Savior of all men, then we must believe that his mystical body, his Catholic church, is also being united to him, is also part of that unicity, the oneness of salvation, uh, the channel of salvation. Head and body are one. Christ and his church are one. And the church fathers would obviously agree. St. Cyprian once stated, there is one God and Christ is one, and there is one church and one chair founded upon the rock of Peter, 
by the word of the Lord. And I love this quotation from St. Augustine, which I'm sure Brother is familiar with because it, it, it really puts it well regarding this topic. St. Augustine writes, no man can find salvation except in the Catholic Church. Outside the Catholic Church, one can have everything except salvation. One can have honor, one can have sacraments, one can sing alleluia, one can answer amen, one can have faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, be Trinitarian and preach it too, but never can one find salvation except in the Catholic Church. Now there's other quotations. In fact, Brother will tell you that they put together whole books with you know, hundreds of pages of quotations from every doctor, every saint, every pope, every uh, uh, church council that covered this topic uh, that speak to this issue. No salvation outside the Catholic Church. But you know, we're not here to condemn people to hell. Christ is a judge, not me. Father Leonard Feeney, who we'll speak about tonight, that wonderful poet, a very popular author, a great defender of the Holy Faith who loved the church, especially loved the dogma of no salvation outside the church. And he prayed privately for many non-Catholic souls during the memento at, uh, for the dead at the mass. Um, Father Feeney brought in hundreds of people to the Catholic church. He loved souls and he wanted to bring them into the only ark of salvation. But as a Catholic priest, and of course, brother is a Catholic religious, we are bound to bring the good news of salvation to the people and to provide them for, with the saving sacraments of Holy Church. We are bound to accept the order of things established by the good Lord, where Christ the King came to bring together all of scattered humanity into his kingdom, which is obviously the Catholic Church. But let's face it. The clear statements of the church, which I read a number of them, and there are so many others, the clear statements of the church in the past on matters of salvation are no longer embraced by many Catholics. Religious indifferentism, right? Doesn't matter what religion you are, reigns as many place their coexist bumper stickers on the back of their Subarus, which you find in New England, don't you? Brother, a lot of New Hampshire yes, Subaru. Yes, many of them. Many, with, with the sticker, yes. <laughs> yes. As if this, especially in Richmond, especially, yeah. as, <laughs> as if this were an enlightened position, which is not. And all this confusion in ecclesiology, that's the study of the church, leads to some dangerous conclusions. So the idea of converting, for example, is frowned upon. Another prelate of the church stated that the idea of Protestants and Orthodox uh, people sort of having, having to convert to the church is considered an outdated ecclesiology. That's what we used to think the modern prelates tell us in our unenlightened past. And so it's fortunate that we have here with us this evening for our Zoom presentation, a true believer and a gifted thinker, especially on this topic, Brother Andre Marie. And so brother, let me just give a quick introduction if that's all right. Um, he is a native of New Orleans, Louisiana. Fantastic. Uh, Brother Andre Marie graduated from the city's Holy Cross School in the late 80s, and he went on to study at LSU, Louisiana State University. 
After three years, he eventually transferred to Holy Apostles College and Seminary up in Cromwell, Connecticut, where our uh, uh, minor uh, seminarians, our college seminarians, are taking online classes right now. Uh, he graduated in a Bachelor's of Art degree um, in Humanities with a minor in Philosophy. And, and eventually in September of 2007, he received the degree of Master of Arts in Theology, and he did very well during that particular time. He entered as a postulant. Remember, that's the first stage of formation for the slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. What a great title for a group. The slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary in May of 1993, and went on to the novitiate on Christmas of that year, and he made profession of vows on Epiphany. In 1996. And since 1993, Brother Andre Marie has, uh, was, was mentored, I should say, in philosophy and theology by Brother Francis Maloof, who we're going to speak about as well, uh, who was a doctor uh, in philosophy, a published philosopher of note. His apostolic works, Brother Andre Marie's apostolic works, included very fa various facets of publishing. Uh, uh, in that postulate of publishing good books. For 10 years, he was also part of the community's small mission band of brothers who traveled various places and distributed good, sound Catholic literature. And he oversaw this apostolate for a number of years. He's edited a number of the books uh, put out by that congregation. He's published dozens of articles. Um, uh, of course, you see his work even also on podcasts, because he also has a uh, weekly radio show um, you know, called Reconquest, which airs on the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade channel. You have a lot there, brother. You've yeah, done a lot well, of good work. I keep busy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And by the way, just to let you know, I, I, I told the people uh, I will be telling this week, I'll be heading up to New Hampshire um, in mid-August, so I hope to stop by and say hello. I usually try to do that, and um, hopefully I can just say hello and see how you're doing. Excellent. I'm looking good. forward to it, Father. Very good. So um, before I start going through some questions, are there, is there any sort of thing that you want to preface um, your thoughts or remarks on, um, or should we go right to the questions? What would be your... I think we should probably go right to the questions, Father. Okay, very good. So... Um, if you could, this topic is, a, is, is an important one. I think it's very practical as well as vital. Um, but what is sort of the rationale for this dogma? Outside the Catholic Church, there is no salvation, which is a dogma. So you, this is a teaching of the apostles. This is what Christ taught them. Um, what is the, sort of the reasoning behind this, do, this dogma, extra ecclesiam nolosaurus? Well, when you talk about a rationale for a doctrine, obviously you're not talking about something, as you know, Father, that's naturally discernible, some philosophical truth that we can come to by simply using our minds well with observable data around us, right? Uh, we're talking about something that we depend upon God to reveal to us through supernatural means. So, Part of the rationale for it is to say simply, well, God revealed it through his teaching church, and when it comes to supernatural revelation, we're dependent upon that mode of communication, God teaching us through his infallible church. 
Now there is that that said within within that um, matrix of divine and Catholic faith, we can certainly make sense out of this doctrine. Jesus Christ is the unique Savior. He many many times said things like, "Without me, no one comes to the Father." Right? Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he made it very clear that he had unique prerogatives as the as the God Man, as the Messiah, um, as the King of Universe. And since all salvation comes through him, then it stands to reason that 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 church, which is his body, which is an extension of himself on earth, and that is, of course, the Catholic Church, that is the means of salvation. And that must be the only means of salvation, because if there were other means of salvation, then what the Catholic Church teaches as God's truth uh, isn't really necessary, because then you can have the Lutheran take on it, or the Presbyterian take on it, or for that matter, a Hindu, Jewish, or Muslim take on God and divine truths, and um, then that, that reduces Jesus Christ to, to somebody who's uh, inconsequential, at least as far as the individual salvation of a believer. Um, yeah, our Lord said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and go out and shall find pasture. That's the church. He's the door. We enter in through him, and we enter into his mystical body. Um, I think St. Thomas makes a very good and very important observation here that there's no salvation without faith. The unity of the church, he says, exists because of the unity of faith, and the church is that community which has the same faith. And then he goes on and connects this to the sacraments, saying that uh, the, the salvation of the faithful is consummated through the sacraments of the church, whereby the passion of our Lord is made effective. So St. Thomas himself explicitly defended the necessity of the church for salvation, connecting it to the theological virtue of faith and to the sacraments. So, you know, I think the best way to look at it, though, is looking at the church as the mystical body of Christ. We form as uh, Blessed Columba Marmion said, we form but one with him. We are one with Christ in the mystical body. And therefore, we are that one person who came down from heaven and who goes up to heaven. Jesus Christ is the conduit. He's the, the, the ladder of Jacob, you know, Jacob's ladder, where, where the angels were coming up and going down, right? So Jesus forms that conduit through which mortal men can enter into an eternity of salvation in heaven. And I think for all these reasons, it makes sense within the matrix of faith uh, of the revealed religion that there's no salvation outside the church. Yeah, I, I, I love the fact that we never separate Christ from his church. Uh, Christ, the head, and the, his body are always united, and uh, they make up one mystical person, which I love. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about that, too. But what about those, brother, who would say, well, that sounds some sort of like medieval teaching that was brought out by the scholastics. You know, this wasn't part of the gospel community. This, this notion of the unicity of salvation only found in Christ and the Catholic Church, but maybe something that, you know, the Council of Florence or these sort of later uh, uh, Middle Ages, early Renaissance, you know, when the church was sort of dominant and sort of imposed its will. So, is this a gospel truth? Is this something that the apostles would have preached? Oh, sure. It, it connects immediately. I mean, we, we can infer it 
from what our Lord says in Scripture in John 3, 5 about the necessity of baptism, uh, and also Mark 16, 16, where he's, he tells them to preach the, the gospel to all creatures. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not will be condemned. As I said, St. Thomas correctly connects the church to both of those two realities, faith, because that's, that's where we have the unity of faith in the church. This is the faith that Jesus reveals. And, uh, and the sacraments. And there we see both. I mean, Mark 16, 16 is talking about the necessity of faith and the sacraments. And if we believe not, we're condemned. Well, the church is that place where we go to get the faith. What do the catechumens say when they approach for baptism? Uh, the first question, and I'm sure, Father, you've done this ritual many times. Mm -hmm. What do you seek from the church of God? The answer, faith. Uh, so the church gives the, the catechumen, uh, gives to the, to the infant who's being baptized as well, by the infused habit, faith. And, and that is where we get the faith from the church. We also get the sacraments from the church. So everything in Scripture that says, uh, speaks of the importance of baptism. I mean, St. Peter is so radical about it when he, when, he, when he talks about the Ark of Noah. You, you brought up that beautiful Ark church typology, Father, mm -hmm. uh, which I very much love. Uh, you cited St. Cyprian. He was not the earliest father to say it. Origen was the earliest. He was a Greek father. But when you go back further, you can go into St. Peter saying, talking about the Ark of Noah and then saying, and baptism being now of like form saves you also. So he's talking about how those in the ark were saved by water uh, because they floated above the water instead of drowning in the water. Uh, and he talks about how uh, he connects baptism to that, saying that it's of like form. It's salvation via water, but because we're actually entering into the ark, not just drowning in the water outside. Uh, so th this is something that I think is quite biblical and patristic, it was those who draw a, a wedge, and you're obviously talking about modernists who do this kind of thing, they dismiss something as medieval or scholastic, because that's a convenient way for them to get rid of things that they don't like. But if you look back uh, to, the, to the fathers, if you look back to the Bible, you see these same truths affirmed, perhaps not with the same um, philosophical and theological clarity that we get in the later generation of the scholastics, but what were the scholastics doing? They were simply looking back at the fathers and looking back at the biblical uh, inspired authors and saying, uh, well, this is what they teach because they're quoting them constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is something, this has always been believed, always been preached, all time, everywhere. This is a truly infallible dogma of our holy faith. But people would say, brother, that uh, this is... Um, this is a, a, a cruel doctrine, they might say, or an exclusionary doctrine, uh, a mean doctrine. <laughs> but how would you explain it? This is actually a merciful doctrine. Our Lord opening himself up, come to me. Yeah, I mean, Father, it, so we can take St. There's a beautiful utterance of St. Augustine meditating on uh, what St. John says about the side of our Lord being opened. Now, both the Vulgate that we have in Latin and the old, the Vetus Latina edition of the Latin Bible that St. Augustine had, use the same term. They say that his side was open. They don't say it was pierced. They don't say it was punctured. They say it was opened. And St. Augustine has this beautiful meditation on that, 
saying that it was opened because the, just as there was a, 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 an opening cut into the side of the ark where all those would be saved from the universal flood, so too there was an opening in the side of our Lord so that all of those who would be saved would enter into it. And of course, this connects with what comes out of our Lord's sacred heart on the cross, which is the blood and the water, the blood of the Eucharist and the water, of course, of baptism. And by entering into those sacraments, we actually enter into the sacred heart, if you will, into the very center of that ark, which is the church. It all, it all uh, connects. Now, as far as this doctrine being, being cruel, I think um, what, there was something that Father Feeney said one time when he was being pushed on this. He said, look, when I say that there's no salvation outside the church, or when we Catholics profess that there's no salvation outside the church, we're actually affirming that there is salvation inside the church. <laughs> and that's the good news. Right. Um, you know, this is, the Redemptors have the motto, copiosa apareum redemptio, right? With him, there was copious redemption. Ab you know, there's an abundance, there's a generosity of redemption. And that, of course, is from, is from the Psalms. And this, this is something that's true of the church. Just because there's no salvation outside the church doesn't mean there's no salvation. It means that the church is there, and the church is not simply one tribe or tongue or nation or people, right? It's all tribes and tongues and nations and peoples. It's Catholic, which means, of course, universal. And therefore, uh, it, it's the only one that's spread to all nations throughout all of the ages of Christianity. So, and by the way, Catholicity, Father, as you well know, is one of the church's four essential marks Right. which is a note by which she's recognized. And, um, and, 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 you know, if we were like the, you know, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church or the five-gallon Baptist Church of uh, East Waco or something, mm -hmm. uh, making the claim that there's no salvation at the church would be arbitrary, right? And it would limit it to the, the members of our sort of puny sect. Right. But this cannot be said of the universal church. Right. Absolutely. I, I love that. This, is, this doctrine is saying there is salvation available. It is copious. So come into Christ's mystical body. Um, and of course, the saints lived like this in the past. I mean, they spread the gospel. They went to every corner of the earth. So is there a couple of saints that you can think of that practically put this dogma into action? Well, you mentioned St. Paul, so you stole my thunder, Father. Um, but, uh, but <laughs> There's other times. <laughs> I think, well, well let, let me just say about the Apostle of the Gentiles, uh, who was the greatest missionary of all time. Um, there is a beautiful passage in Acts chapter 16, where St. Paul gets this vision in the night, some sort of a dream, uh, of a man from Macedonia who's beseeching him. And he says, pass over into Macedonia and help us. And they knew once they heard that, uh, that it was time now to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel to them. That sort of aching heart to go out and give the gospel to those who need it, uh, that's the impulse of the missionary. And uh, we're told, even Vatican II says it, that the church is missionary by her very nature. I think after St. Paul, probably Father, the greatest apostle, uh, apostle or, 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 or missionary in history has been St. Francis Xavier, 
who, you know, if you go to Rome, you know, you go into the Church of the Jesu, the big Jesuit church, you can, you can venerate that hand, that arm that baptized uh, three million people uh, in, in uh, Japan, in India, in Sri Lanka, all over the east, all over these Pacific islands. This was a man who was a, uh, a consummate missionary. And, you know, he, he gave us a famous prayer for unbelievers. And in that prayer for unbelievers, he talks about how these unbelievers don't believe in our Lord and therefore they go to hell. I mean, you've probably seen that prayer. It used to be prayed in the Novena of Grace every year. Uh, and it was popular in parishes back in the days when there were many more priests uh, like you doing the work that you do with, with um, parish missions. And they would pray that sort of thing. And, um, and this shows you the, 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 the real desire of St. Francis Xavier's heart to bring the gospel to these people. And, he, and again, he preached to millions and he baptized three million. Um, another one that comes to mind um, is, a, is a, of course, he had all these great Dominican missionaries, the Sp Spanish Franciscans who came to the New World, the much maligned uh, Father uh, Junipero Serra, mm -hmm. uh, who's having statues destroyed and he's being called all sorts of lying names because he came here to evangelize, inspired by this doctrine, uh, as well as the, the, simply the glory of God. Um, there's an obscure character uh, who was a member of the PIME missionaries, the Pontifical um, uh, Foreign Missionaries, and his name was Blessed Giovanni Matsuconi. And it's very interesting, Father, we, we have an article about him on Catholicism.org that was written years ago by the now deceased Brother Thomas Mary Sennett. It's called Blessed John Matsuconi and the New Guinea Battlefield. Well, it's very interesting that he, he died a martyr. He was, he was killed by the pagans in, in New Guinea, and the church determined he died in Odium Fidei. But what's interesting about him is that when his father was giving him a difficult time with this idea that he was going to go and join this missionary congregation and go overseas and probably never you know, see his family again. Um, he told his father, this is what his biographer says. Um, okay, this was the voice of nature speaking, and it was not difficult for John to win over his father. With enthusiasm and passion, he described to him the miserable state of infidels who were condemned to go to hell because nobody carried, cared to preach Christ to them. Giacomo, that's the father, who was profoundly Christian, was so moved by his son's eloquence and convincing arguments that bowing his head to the will of God, he said, if it is really as you say, then go quickly, don't waste any time. Mm. Now, what's funny is the book that I'm quoting here was written by a PAME missionary, an Italian, like Blessed Giovanni Montalcone. But, of course, this is well after Vatican II, and he seeks to correct this thinking of the subject of his book by saying that um, th this motive was based upon the common belief prevailing in those days that all infidels, which is in quotes, uh, right. were condemned to hell and that only those persons who would come to know Christ and would become members of the Catholic Church would have a chance to gain eternal salvation. And then he talked about how we really don't believe that anymore. <laughs> uh, so th th this is... This Sometimes is he's right, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, by, <laughs> and by the way, you see the same sort of tension when you read the biography of St. Francis Xavier by the, the, the Jesuit biographer 
uh, whose name currently escapes me. He's a famous Jesuit biographer. He wrote the, a two-volume life of St. Robert Bellarmine as well. But uh, he's a great writer, but he was a Jesuit of the 1950s when they were already infected by Teilhardism and all this other stuff. And uh, this is, a, so in, in his book, you see this remarkable contrast between the author and his subject. And you see that with a lot of books written by modern, modern, especially members of religious orders, writing about, you know, the great missionaries of their own order who were motivated by this antiquated dogma. Uh, and funny, they don't seem to make the connection that these religious orders mostly are going to pot, you know, they're going to seed. Right. And they, they don't make the connection that maybe perhaps it's because, you know, we're no longer teaching these things and believing them. Absolutely. So well put. What would motivate these saints? They were compelled. They knew that salvation could only be found in Christ in his body. Now, um, Father, can I add one? Yes, please do. Yes. Um, Benedict XVI, uh, in, in 2015, uh, in an interview that he gave to a Jesuit priest, uh, talked about how in the 16th century, the missionaries were still convinced that those who were not baptized were forever lost. And this explains their missionary commitment. He goes on to say that after the Second Vatican Council, that conviction was finally abandoned. And then he talked about the deep double crisis that follows this. First of all, the, the, on the one hand, there was this loss of missionary commitment. And then on the other hand, there were Catholics themselves who thought, well, why should we even be Catholic if it's not necessary for salvation? Because after all, you know, it's not easy to be a Catholic. We have all of these demands uh, from the moral law, um, you know, the teachings on marriage alone, which, which are being scuttled everywhere else. Right. So the, the, the Benedict XVI, who was no, you know, he's no, no radical flaming traditionalist, as you know, Father, mm -hmm. uh, he could see the connection there. Absolutely. I think that you lose that dogma as one of our motivating factors, we're going to lose the missionary zeal. But, you know, when we talk, we, we mentioned a few names, uh, like, for example, Father Leonard, Father Leonard Feeney, uh, Brother Francis, I mentioned that he was a mentor to you. Then um, there's a sister in Catherine. Is it Goddard? Is that how you pronounce her last name? Goddard, yes. Catherine Goddard, Goddard Clark. So this, because what happens is that people take this infallible dogma taught from the gospel, taught by the apostles, taught by all the church fathers, taught by all the church councils, even Vatican II, necessary for salvation. But they say, oh, that's just Feneyism. No, that you're a Feneyite. And they've taken the name of a, of, of, a, of a wonderful priest, and they've made it a pejorative to sort of just dismiss the necessity of the church. So, but this was a real man, and, and Brother Francis was a real man. If you could just talk about them, who were these men, and what, what did they have to face back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and even into the 70s, and for Brother Francis even beyond, the, the, the backlash that they face by defending a, a dogma. If you could just, just talk about them, what brought them together, the work that they did, and how they were treated by a lot of the more mainline prelates within uh -huh. the church. Well, just a, a quick sort of background. Father Leonard arrived at St. Benedict Center, which is a Cambridge area, Cambridge, Massachusetts area, 
student uh, organization. It was not a Newman Center. It was, uh, it was set up in 1940 by Sister Catherine, uh, by Catherine Goddard Clark, a laywoman, who wanted to have a place where Catholics who attended the Cambridge area schools, uh, Harvard and Radcliffe and MIT and, and other institutions around there, could go to hear the Catholic faith presented. Uh, they could go for social events as well. She was concerned that Catholics going to Harvard and other such uh, schools uh, were in danger of losing their faith, which of course was a major problem because of what was being taught there and the sort of the indifferentism that you'll get in such an atmosphere. And so Sister Catherine established that. Now in 1942, uh, a little less than two years after the founding of St. Benedict Center, by, by the way, two, two other people founded it with Sister Catherine. Uh, a, a young man by the name of Christopher Hunter, who then became Monsignor Hunter, who died in 2000, and another young man by the name of Avery Dulles, oh, yes. recent convert, the son of John Foster Dulles and the, the nephew of Alan Dulles, two sort of early members of the deep state and sort of <laughs> part, of the, part of the Anglo-Protestant political establishment in this country. Um, so, Alan, or, or rather, um, Avery Dulles converts uh, and eventually becomes a Jesuit and, and uh, the only American uh, priest made a cardinal on the merits of his being a theologian. Now, uh, he, he obviously had some ideological differences, theological differences with Father Leonard at a certain point very early on in his Jesuit career, and that set him on a trajectory to success. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, nonetheless, that is the background of St. Benedict Center. Those three people founded it. In 1942, Father Feeney comes and is made uh, the spiritual director of the center after giving some sort of smashing presentations. And Sister Catherine, or, or then Catherine, who's a lay woman, begged uh, his Jesuit superiors to, to make him officially assigned to St. Benedict Center. He got there and, and um, he had Thursday night lectures where he'd talk about theology, but it wasn't sort of dry textbook stuff. It was very vivid, very uh, attractive, very welcoming to people of all sorts of different aptitudes. But these were mostly college students that were coming around. And uh, on Monday night, Sister Catherine, who was uh, uh, very good at history, would give history lectures, uh, principally church history, but she could sort of meander all around different historical subjects. And then what happened in, in uh, 1942 also is that uh, uh, a, a young man, but a young professor or a doctor, he was not yet a professor, but uh, with a PhD in philosophy, uh, newly, newly acquired from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, uh, uh, Fakhri Malouf is the Lebanese name, uh, he had come over from Lebanon under some interesting circumstances uh, because he was <laughs> he was actually a target of uh, he was a target of a, of a death warrant actually uh, there was there was a death sentence on his head from a certain group of let's say um, a dangerous political political adjutants in his home country uh, and he ended up in the United States on a, a student visa and uh, because of the war. He had to stay in, in, in the United States much longer than he originally intended. So he, he sort of piled up degrees, first a master's degree in philosophy, then a doctorate in philosophy. And then he did postdoctoral studies at, at Harvard and eventually at, at St. Bonaventure of the Franciscan College in New York State. But so the three of these folks met 
1942 is when they all they all coalesced. And I told you that Sister Catherine lectured in history on Monday nights. Father Feeney lectured in in theology or religion uh, on Thursday nights. Uh, Fakhrim Ba'aluf lectured in philosophy on Tuesday nights, and his lectures became very popular as well. And these were the sort of the three teachers. In fact, I say sort of. These were the three teachers who made St. Benedict Center what it was. In fact, speaking of Avery Dulles, it was Brother Francis or, or Fakhrim Ba'aluf. He later be, take the name Brother Francis in religion. It was he who introduced Avery Dulles to the study of philosophy. So I don't know if that's embarrassing for brother or not, but he taught, <laughs> he taught him philosophy out of the Gret textbook, all in Latin. Mm. Um, so that yeah, that, that's the that's the early days of St. Benedict Center. But moving in through the 1940s, Father Feeney was actually making converts. They made Father about 200 converts from Harvard and the other colleges in that area. Protestants, Jews, mostly Protestants, Yankee blue bloods, you know, these people, these scions of, of well-to-do uh, Anglo-Protestant families, some of them with very prominent waspy names. Uh, and when these folks uh, were converting, when the, when the offspring of prominent Boston uh, Anglo-Protestants were converting, that was not good to the Jesuits and to and to the church and the Archdiocese of Boston, because neither of those two organizations was very mission-minded. Uh, and not only that, but there's an important political uh, uh, element to plug into this. Old Joe Kennedy, you know, the, 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 the liquor runner, the bootlegger, uh, wanted at least one of his sons to be president. And this is at a time, Father, when the Irish uh, were coming out of the Catholic ghetto in, in many of these northeastern cities, and they were sick of being marginalized and so forth. Well, Kennedy sort of, the Kennedy family sort of represents that. These are the Irish Catholics who were sick of being marginalized and wanted to take their rightful place in society. Well, that meant making peace with the traditional enemies of the church, and I say enemies in the theological sense, Protestants, Jews, and what you ended up getting was in order to enter into the upper echelons of society, we had to mute things. And this, of course, was a revival of the 19th century Americanism, where it was all soft-pedaling the, the sort of the hard edges of Catholic doctrine. And uh, the, 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 these were the sort of the shamefaced Catholics who wanted to rise up into respectability, but they did it at the expense of, of the harsh truths of the faith and a lot of the traditions of the faith. And these are the people who were completely indifferent, of course, when all the changes came down the pike uh, in, in the 60s and 70s. So because of this and because of the, of the connection of Richard Cardinal Cushing to the Kennedy family, they were, they were friends, they were tight. Uh, a priest going around saying that there's no salvation inside the church, which Father Feeney started to do in the middle of the 40s. Uh, he said he put his finger on the, on the thing that's causing the biggest problem in the church is that we've, we've lost the sense of this doctrine. And when he started to preach about it, um, that really uh, brought in 
uh, that really brought down the wrath of the of the uh, establishment. So you have this contrary motion, Father. You have the the ones who want to be sort of complicit and accommodating to the dominant culture around them, and then you have Father Feeney, who is is kind of the the, the salmon going upstream of that of that dominant current. And uh, it was not pretty what happened afterwards because he was uh, he was publicly pilloried for this. Yes. I think that that's something that is important that, uh, you know, good Joe Kennedy, he, uh, he, he purposely didn't want his boys to go to Catholic colleges. He, right. cause you know, that, that would sort of, uh, limit them, I suppose, in terms of their future success in terms of the world. Um, and of course you mentioned sort of the, sort of the, the traditional sort of Yankee Protestant blue blood you know, uh, Bostonian sort of uh, power structure that was there. Um, and of course, Cardinal Cushing um, sort of being a part of this too. So this leads to sort of a confrontation, doesn't it? So Father Feeney and was, was, was Brother Francis, was he teaching at BC at this time, Boston College, or what was the situation? Was he one of the teachers that got in trouble or? He was at okay. first. At first, after he got his uh, his his postdoctoral studies all wrapped up at, at uh, Saint Bonaventure, he was teaching at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. Then, because he was becoming a regular at Saint Benedict Center, and there was a distance between Worcester and Boston, he was tra he was transferred. Father Feeney pulled strings actually back in the days when he could do this, and he he went he ended up on the faculty of. Uh, Boston, Co Boston College, BC, which is a Jesuit university uh, in Boston. And, uh, and so, yeah, he was there and he was one of the four professors who got fired in Holy Week of 1949 when uh, everything was sort of um, coming to a head. This, this was in the works for a couple of years, Father. Because Father Feeney was already, they were already publishing things about this in 1947. Uh, Brother Francis had published a piece called uh, the, the uh, Sentimental Theology. And, and that goes back to, I think, 47. Uh, but it, they were becoming tremendously controversial. And, uh, but it came to a head in 49. And that's when Cushing decided, after, by the way, publicly praising Father Feeney on a number of occasions in front of lots of people, um, that's when he decided he was no longer going to tolerate this priest because he was saying there's no salvation inside the church. And mind you, Father, this was not a question of some subtlety. This is not a question of some, you know, disputed scholastic point within the theological manuals or anything. This was Cardinal Cushing shows up at Hillel House which was a, um, a, like the Newman centers were, were, were Catholic. Uh, the Hillel House was sort of this Catholic, the Catholic, the, the Jewish version. It was the Jewish student centers at, you know, non-Jewish colleges and universities. Uh, Cardinal Cushing shows up at Hillel House and announces to a room full of unbaptized Jews that um, if when I die, I don't see you in heaven, I'll know it's because you're not dead yet. <laughs> yes. uh, he was famous for that making, nice. yeah. He was made famous for making sort of vulgar statements. Uh, even when he said things that were true, he, he put it in a sort of vulgarian way. But uh, this is, of course, got him many, many kudos from non-Catholics. 
but again, this is that you seen seen against that backdrop, Father, of uh, the, the the Irish and the other uh, uh, Catholic ethnics wanting to come out of the ghetto and get respectability. It makes perfect sense, uh, especially too when you think of the machinations then of people like Avery Dull's dad and uncle. The early deep state folks were using the Red Menace and the anti-communist crusade to homogenize Catholic ethnics in this country. Mm -hmm. They were also trying to change Catholic uh, social teaching here and abroad to make uh, uh, you know big big business. You know, American big uh, uber capitalists uh, get lots of money from from uh, overseas markets. They were actually cut off to them because of Catholic social teaching. Uh, once they started changing Catholic social teaching in places like Spain and, and Latin America and even Italy, they could sneak in, uh, they could get in, uh, make what, what was called in Time Life magazine, Time and Life magazine, the American century. And, it, and it's no accident. Henry Luce, the editor, uh, publisher of Time magazine and Life magazine and Fortune, was in cahoots with C.D. Jackson, who was a, a, a government a CIA guy. Um, early deep staters, and they wanted to make this the American century, which father was meant the WASP century. It meant the Anglo-American century. It did not mean, you know, Catholic America, right? right. So Americans were, were being drafted into the anti-communist crusade. And of course, I'm not a friend of communism. I'm, I'm, I'm against communism as, as much as the next Catholic who, who realizes that it's condemned by the church for good reasons. But the anti-communist crusade in this country was used as a way of corralling everybody into sort of an homogenized American uh, mere Christian blob, if you will. And there was also this talk, this early ecumenical talk, which they called interfaith, where we set aside our differences and we talked about what we held in common. You know, a, a doctrinaire Catholic is not welcome in those circles, as you right. know, Father. So you have Father Feeney, Brother Francis, Sister or Catherine, Catherine Goddard Clark at that time, they're promoting this infallible dogma, extra ecclesia nullisados, which goes back to the time of the apostles. Um, but then people will say, well, yeah, they had their conflict, but you know, in the end, Father Feeney was excommunicated. You know, that, that's how they end the conversation. He obviously was a heretic, right? Because he was excommunicated by the church. So how do we answer that particular charge, that it wasn't really heresy. You know? He wasn't yeah. excommunicated for those things. So what, what happened, let's say, to him? Um, Father Frank, Frank Sheed of Sheed and Ward. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, at one time he was a good friend of Father Leonard. And in fact, Father Leonard was walking down the street with Frank Sheed and Maisie Ward, and he was standing in between them. And he said, look, I'm the and in Sheed and Ward. Uh, he had a good sense of humor. Uh, but Frank Sheed said years later, it was either, either the 60s or 70s, Sheed wrote, um, Father Feeney was condemned but not answered. And Sheed himself lamented the fact that, that the case was mishandled. By the way, um, Monsignor uh, Butch Fenton, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the great apostle, and the great defender of the doctrine of Christ the King, who was the enemy of... The, the Jesuit John Courtney Murray, who wanted to yes. change the church's social teaching. Uh, Father Fenton, uh, Monsignor Fenton, rather, said that uh, the, the, the Father Feeney case was terribly mishandled. And when he went to Rome, it's written in his diaries, when he went to Rome, 
for Vatican II as a Paritas, uh, he, one of the pieces of business that he wanted to take care of was to convince the Pope and the Curia that we, Vatican II needs to correct this teaching on no salvation inside the church because all of the U.S. bishops and, and clergy are now saying that there is salvation inside the church. Why? Because of what was done to the Father Leonard Feeney. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's explicit on this in his diary. The diary's been published. Now, uh, the, so what actually happened was, I think, a serious botching. Father Feeney was told after the controversy with the Jesuits and the controversy with uh, uh, Cardinal Cushing and the Chancery officials in the Boston Archdiocese, he, there was a back and forth between him and a Cardinal Pizzardo of the, of the then Holy Office, now the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And um, Cardinal Pizzardo at one point summoned Father Fini to come to Rome for, for, well, for what? We don't know. He summoned him to come to Rome. I almost said for a doctrinal hearing, but that's what Father Fini wanted. So what Father Fini said was, please advise me of the charges against me, and please tell me uh, uh, what it is that I am to expect. You know, what, what, what kind of canonical procedure is this? Is this a trial? Is this a disciplinary trial? Is this a doctrinal? Am I being charged with heresy? Cardinal Pizzardo's answers were, in a nutshell, just show up. Now, Father Feeney was getting advice from a canon lawyer at the time, a Jesuit friend who was sort of a Nicodemus or a Joseph of Arimathea, if you will, who was coming to him by night and giving him canonical advice. And Father Feeney was told by his canonical advisor, you need to be told of the charges against you. Uh, and uh, you need to be able to prepare some sort of a defense so that you just don't show up and get waylaid. You have no idea what they're going to do. So unfortunately, the, the, the written communication was very sloppy. Uh, Pizzardo became very, very uh, authoritarian at one point, and, and Father Fini made a decision, which has been debated, by the way, in the, in the order ever since, uh, that he would not go to Rome because he thought it the most prudent bit of advice because of what he was told by his canonist. Um, and therefore, now th that started in 1952. It was in February, I believe, of 1953 that the decree of excommunication comes out. It was only a few short months, October 52 to February 53. And he gets a decree of excommunication uh, fr uh, from the, the Holy Office, uh, and this was, of course, a terrible tragedy. It was a terrible blow. Now, that excommunication was later lifted mm -hmm. by Pope Paul VI. Now, of course, we've contested, we've always contested the validity of the, of the, of the excommunication. Father himself contested it. Uh, but he didn't say mass, you know, uh, publicly. He, he, he acted as if this was something that he should honor, at least in the external forum. Uh, so he, 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 he sort of res, re, retired into the internal forum, as it were. And uh, yet the, the community that he founded continued to evangelize and to do work spreading the faith and defending their salvation inside the church. Eventually, it would be Paul VI who would lift the excommunication by sending two representatives there, a bishop and a monsignor. And uh, the way that the excommunication was lifted was quite comical. Father loved to recite certain things in Greek, and he loved to, to define, to, to um, you know, he, he had an incredible memory. 
and he taught everybody to memorize the Athanasian Creed in Latin and in Greek. So all of the early members of St. Benedict's Center would uh, uh, re recite, could recite the Athanasian Creed in both Greek and Latin. So what happened was these representatives of Paul VI were there and they said, well, Father, um, why don't you make a profession of faith for us? <laughs> so Father says, oh, great, sure. So he chose you know, the longest one in Greek. And they recited the Athanasian Creed, which, of course, you know, Father, it's part of the official lit the liturgy of the church. Prime uh, on every Sunday. <laughs> it said, oh, you do every Sunday? Wow. Uh, well, actually, uh, on, on Trinity Sunday, it's, it's, it's the... Yeah, uh, Trinity it's Sunday. Prime. In the 62 right, it's only on Trinity Sunday. But So it's yeah. part of the liturgy of the church. And it three times says that there's no salvation inside the church, in a nutshell. Right. Three times, beginning, middle, and end, just in case you missed it at the beginning. Right. Uh, and so they recited the Athanasian Creed in Greek all together, and at the end of it, there was no ceremony, there was no signing of documents in front of Father Feeney where he had to sign something or anything. He found out later that that was the profession of faith that got the excommunication lifted. Uh, so there were, you know, these were strange occurrences, Father. They, they, they weren't playing um, straight. They weren't playing, you know... Uh, honestly, with integrity, but part of the th part of the reasoning, I think, is because well, he was an old man by that point, and you know we don't want to force too much on him, so just go easy on him. Uh, unfortunately, because of this, because of this, because of the harsh excommunication, the mishandling of the case, acknowledged by many people, um, I, I spoke of two of them, Frank Sheed and Monsignor Fenton. Because of this, uh, there, and then because of the lifting of the excommunication, which was done practically in secret and, and done in this very strange way, the doctrinal issue was sidestepped. And uh, that's unfortunate. Yes. So I, I guess this leads into maybe uh, the fact that he, he was reconciled uh, by just reciting the Athanasian Creed. That, that sort of brought all the uh, difficulties to an end, but it still sort of lives on. And one of the things that people talk about is the notion of water baptism. That this seems to be one of the issues. And, you know, Father Feeney and others would have read all those stories of the saints, you know, the Jesuit martyrs of North America, you know, getting the dew that fell from various, you know, grass blades or, or to, to baptize a dying infant um, or, or, or other cases of actually raising, resuscitating people from, de from, the, from the dead, like in the case of uh, St. Joan of Arc and also I think St. Peter Claver, they raised me from the dead in order to baptize them. And St. Patrick, uh, too. Yeah. So, obviously, you read this, and you see the necessity emphasized in the gospel. So, if you could talk about that topic of water baptism, and maybe the unfortunate, um, I guess, Baltimore Catechism, which, which most Americans have sort of, at least in the old days, would have read, where they talk about, there's three baptisms. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, of course, that's against the scriptures, which tell us there's one Lord, one, there's one baptism, you know. But anyway, if you could just touch upon that um, and what sort of, you know, the reason why Father Feeney obviously really thought that this was an essential element. Obviously, to come to the church, you have to be baptized. Yes. Well, okay, so let me say, Father, that it's a, it's a lot of people think because of some of the polemics that have happened in recent, only in the most recent decades, um, 
the there has been a um, an emphasis on the on the question of uh, baptism in the debates surrounding this, uh, and I think this is unfortunate because people will tell you, oh, Father Feeney, oh, he was the guy that says that there's no such thing as baptism of desire, or he was the guy that says that you know baptism of blood doesn't get martyrs into heaven, which of course isn't isn't something that he said. But the problem is, we have a creed that tells us, I believe in one baptism. It doesn't say, uh, credo in tres bapti tria baptismata, right, Father? Yes. It says, credo in, in unum baptis baptisma. And the, uh, the church herself teaches that, that, in the Council of Trent, that baptism is necessary for salvation in what she teaches on, on the sacraments. Uh, of course, our Lord himself says in John 3, 5, that with, unless a man is born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And there are many such utterances. Uh, we talked about St. Peter talking about baptism being of like form now saves you also. Uh, now, there is, of course, this teaching that we find in many of the scholastics and some of the fathers teaching that, you know, in lieu of the sacrament, somebody who is, um, who has faith, who wants to be baptized, somebody who's part of the formal catechumenate of the early church, if he is justified by that uh, faith working by charity in his soul, which of course takes divine action to make that happen, uh, and he dies in that state without the sacrament, then he's saved, right? And, and, and they say the same thing about martyrs, of course. It's just, as far as I'm concerned, baptism of blood is simply a more complete version of baptism of desire because, of course, it's sealed by martyrdom. And we know that no true martyr can possibly be lost to the beatific vision. Now, Father Feeney knew that, the, that, that there were fathers who taught this. He knew that this was standard manual theology in, in the day. And, but he wanted to emphasize the necessity of the, of the sacrament. It's interesting to me, Father, that if you look at the current catechism of the Catholic Church, which I imagine you probably don't have in your top, you know, 1,000 books on your shelf. But if you look at that, New Catechism, it talks about the, 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 uh, the, the church knows no other way than sacramental baptism for people to enter into heaven. And then the subsequent paragraphs speak of baptism of desire and baptism of blood. And to me, this is something that was wise for them to do. If you're going to speak of it at all, give what's certain first. They say the church knows of no other way. And then they go on to talk about other ways which are obviously speculative. So we're talking about speculation here. And there's nothing wrong with speculation within the, the prism of, of faith, within the matrix of faith. Scholastic philosophy, theology is speculative theology by its very nature. The two, the two concepts are, are synonymous. So uh, when St. Thomas talks about baptism of desire, when, when some of the other fathers talk about it and doctors talk about it, they're limiting it to somebody who has theological faith, who wants the sacrament, uh, who is subject to the authority of the Pope and the bishops in communion with him. This is what they meant by baptism of desire. Now, to go from that to the, Boston, the, the Baltimore rather, Catechism, which says that there are three baptisms, as if there's an A plan, a B plan, and a C plan, is, I think, very destructive, because even those analogous baptisms of desire and blood are based upon the sacrament. They're based upon the sacramental economy. 
They're based upon uh, the faith which teaches us that there's one baptism. And to remove them from that sacramental economy, which especially now modern theologians do with Karl Rahner and the Invisible Christian and all that, is, is to be, I think, unbiblical. It's to, it's to spit in the face of the scholastics who never said you can go around saying that baptism is not necessary for salvation. All of them taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. When handling, you know, extreme cases, you know, hypothetical cases of what happens if, they then speculated to these other things. And yeah, the speculation became uh, very common and, and a very common opinion. It's not heresy to say this. What's heresy is to deny that the church is necessary for salvation. It's right. to deny that the baptism is necessary for salvation. And it's to deny that the divine and Catholic faith is necessary for salvation. Uh, but we know that God connected the order of faith to the sacramental economy. So when you go around teaching that, that the sacrament of baptism is necessary for salvation, that's how you get people desiring baptism in the first place. Right. Uh, don't go preaching desire for the desire for the desire of something. Preach the sacrament and its necessity, and then you'll have people actually desiring it. And right. gee, maybe they'll even get it. Right. Well put. Now, you know, in terms of this topic, um, because, you know, it sort of brings out, you know, all these sort of debates and arguments when this is something that was not argued. I mean, you know, Christ said, unless you're baptized, you know, you can't enter into the kingdom. It's very, very clear. And like you said, that's the objective truth. And this speculation is important too. But, but why is it, do you think, that some of the most ardent foes of Father Feeney and Brother Francis are traditionalist Catholics. Like, for some reason, like some members of a particular group, we won't necessarily say a traditional group that is obviously well-known, has various chapels, even in, well, northern Kentucky, right, uh, where I am. Oh, uh, you're getting close, Father. <laughs> why is it that they tend to be the most vocal against a, 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 a man that was, you know, had everybody against him, it seemed, the whole, con, you know, you know, contra Fini, I mean, it was, contra mundum, Fini contra mundum. Um, <laughs> and yet they seem to really go after what they would call Feniism or Feniites. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, having, having had red-faced members of that very society, which will remain nameless, in my face, uh, I know wherever you speak, Father. Um, now, I, I don't like to get in somebody else's head, especially, another pre especially a priest, uh, and, but I, I think that there are probably two factors here. One, I think there is a legitimate theological disagreement with certain of what I would call secondary issues. And those are issues which could be placidly and academically discussed and uh, in the context of a gentlemanly disagreement about something and then set aside. Um, that's part of it. I think another part of it is that some traditionalists, of course, have this idea that they were, the, they were the first ones on the block, and everybody else is sort of a wannabe. Uh, 
And I think some of them have a, a kind of a king of the hill complex. I think uh, the not said society to which you were referring has a bit of a king of the hill complex among many of its members, among some of the more vocal members. I also know, Father, priests of this, of this group. And I also, I, I, one of them, who was a, was a wonderful retreat master, by the way, um, he, he and I have had some good conversations. And he told a third party, who's a friend of mine, he says, you know, I've been reading about this thing. And he's not even American, he's a foreigner. He said, I, I, I've been reading about this thing with Father Feeney. He says, you know, from what I can tell, I think I'm a Feeneyite. <laughs> uh, and, and mind you, he belongs to an outfit that's published not one, not two, but three books berating uh, Father Feeney. Uh, so he thinks it's uh, overblown, and he's not alone. I know of other um, members in that community. But I also think that their founder was uh, around at a time and flourishing at a time when the immediately pre-Vatican II theology was denying the necessity of the church and was denying the necessity of the sacrament in such a way that they would tell people in missionary territory, instead of baptize a, a dying catechumen, um, they, they've said, well, it's not a big deal. You get baptism of desire. Uh, and this, of course, is not what the great missionaries, you know, as we, we quoted uh, uh, the emeritus pope, a few minutes ago, saying that in the 16th century, you know, there was this conviction, by the way, they didn't make it up in the 16th century, that baptism is necessary for salvation. And that's why the, the great Counter-Reformation missionaries were, uh, were, had their drive, had their missionary zeal. But, um, you know, unfortunately, that got soft-pedaled before Vatican II. Vatican II wasn't something that was created ex nihilo. The, the things that happened there and the fallout afterwards, there was a lead-in, there was a prequel to it. And uh, some of these uh, people who later became part of the traditional movement had kind of imbibed some of the popular liberalism of that day. Uh, uh, I mean, I think it's a fact, and I think it's a fact that we have to face. Just yeah. as there were Americanist clergy who later become traditionalists. Well, they still, still, still hadn't jettisoned their weird Americanist ideas. Yes. So um, I'm going to ask one final question, but again, people have written in some questions, which I hope to get to as well. I'm sure Brother is more than willing to answer. So if people have questions they want to write into the question and answer box, please do, and we'll look at those too. But I just wanted to, obviously with what we just went through, that there's still resistance to really this infallible dogma. Um, and so the work of Father Feeney, Brother Francis, Sister Catherine continues this crusade as they often call it. Um, so how are you involved in this work in, where you are with the slaves and how could we sort of get to know more about your group, your community and, and, and support? Well, thank you, Father. Thank you for that. Um, well, if you're if you're online, which of course anybody who can hear me right now on the computer is online, uh, you can go to Catholicism.org, Catholicism.org, and uh, this is our website. This is our main website. Now, what we do is uh, manifold. We 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 run a school. It's a small school in, in rural New Hampshire, rural southern New Hampshire, and you know we teach religion among uh, the, the 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 other R's. 
and we also evangelized. We do street evangelism. Uh, probably one of the reasons I get technical difficulties tonight is because the brother who is technically literate more so than I am uh, is doing some of that very work right now uh, on Long Island. Um, and he, he, two of our brothers are there and they sort of interact with the man on the streets in a kind of street evangelism that we call book selling. Mm-hmm. Um, we take our publications around from door to door. And uh, so that's, that's another aspect. Uh, we also publish, you know, print publications. And uh, we go to people on the street, showing them, giving them Catholic sacramentals, you know, miraculous medals, the rosary. We introduce them to these different means. We give them tracts, you know, do we engage in street evangelism and street apologetics? Um, And a lot of times, you know, people have never heard the Catholic message. And there have been conversions that have come from this. We also, Father, uh, aside from the website, we do some um, other online media stuff. Um, the the uh, show that you talked about earlier, the radio show Reconquest, is something that I do on a weekly basis. And this has gotten, um, the, the Crusade Channel has gotten a number of converts. The Crusade Channel that, that airs my show has gotten a number, a number of, uh, there, were, there were Protestants, uh, from the South, from different parts of the country who have converted to Catholicism, and they're now traditional Catholics. We had a Jew who uh, was, was baptized uh, about a year before he tragically died, uh, but he died a Catholic. Um, so the work goes on. Um, we also, you know, give talks here or there if we're asked, and we do things like this, <laughs> what you and I are doing now. We talk. Yes. No, I think it's wonderful uh, because, you know, just as a final note, uh, I, I have the uh, great privilege of having known a lot of people who knew Father Feeney directly. They were contemporaries of him. Um, a lot of sisters at St. Anne House in uh, yeah. Silver, Massachusetts. And of course, I visited Father Feeney's grave many times. And the militancy that these young people had uh, because of the inspiration, obviously, yeah, grace moving them, but also just a very wonderful priest who had a lot of, uh, he put things well, he had a great uh, way of putting things. He was poet, um, a great thinker in many ways. And I think the militancy that was there, if the church membership at that time had just captured that, you know, it, 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 but you know, our, our Lord has allowed this for, for a time. And, um, but I think that Brother Andre and, and, and other uh, groups connected to Father Feeney and others, I think they tried to recapture that militancy which was there. And hopefully um, this particular dogma can be once again proclaimed without fear of human respect and issues like that. So, Brother, if it's okay, I'm just going to um, go through a couple of these questions that uh, some of our audience members have asked. Uh, ooh, well, can I can I interject one please thing? Please do. Really yes. I, I just so that in case the uh, listeners uh, or viewers, I suppose, are not aware, uh, we don't just have brothers here. In fact, the brothers are very much outnumbered by the sisters at this location. So there's a priory, and then uh, uh, down down the road a piece, uh, there's a convent. We call it Saint Philomena's Convent, and the sisters teach in our school and do many, many wonderful works. Sister Marie Philomena uh, does the St. Augustine Institute of Catholic Studies, which is kind of a, uh, an ongoing adult Catholic studies program that was begun by Brother Francis. Mm-hmm. So 
um, I didn't want, I don't want anybody getting a false impression that it's just the brothers that are here and that we really sure. don't do anything. Would you, I mean, just to, a quick thing about that, that St. Augustine Institute, is that, is that what it's called? Uh, yes, you that is there a group of CDs that people can get or is it actually online now or what sort well, of? There's an online, there's two elements. Uh, there's an online study program and Sister Maria Philomena heads that up. She's sort of your personal teacher. Um, but there's also a, uh, a, we have years and years and years of recorded lectures by Brother Francis mostly, but others as well. Uh, and uh, they're all available. At, those are available at store.catholicism.org, which if, if you go to catholicism.org, links to all of these things are there. Our store, as well as a link at the top to the St. Augustine Institute of Wisdom. And there you can, you can sign up for the program uh, to, to, to continue Catholic studies. Uh, but and, and with an emphasis on things like what we've been discussing, also on how to evangelize and things like that. But in general, you know, just to make a Catholic an erudite Catholic, to know what he should know to be an informed and educated Catholic. Wonderful. Um, here's some questions. Um, this one comes saying, uh, the Anabaptists um, believe that you had to be baptized twice since Christ said, quote, unless you believe and are baptized, you cannot be saved. How do we argue the, to them, since we baptize our infants, infants cannot believe because they do not yet have the gift of reason. Yeah, did you get that? You get where that's going with that question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. okay. If, if, I think, Father, that the first half of the question was based upon something that's not true. I'd have to double check though. But they were called Anabaptists because they would be they would baptize people again who had been baptized as infants because those were invalid. I don't think they said you had to be baptized twice. They okay. said you had to be baptized, but to be baptized, you had to do it as an adult. Okay. Now, now the Anabaptists, which of course were the earlier sect that give us now the Baptists, as well as other anti-paedo-baptistic modern sects, they were one of the radical sects of Protestantism. I think the way that we argue with them, like our modern-day Baptists, for instance, uh, is to say, okay, Jesus announces that, this, that, there, that baptism is necessary for salvation. We know that baptism washes us, it cleanses us, it cleanses sin. St. Paul in Romans chapter 5 makes it very clear that, 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 sin, that original sin is universal. Uh, this is not something that any of us escape. We're all born children of wrath. Uh, and if we, if we then go beyond that and say, well, there must be, you know, Jesus says, let the little children come on to me and forbid them not. There must be some way of having children come to Jesus. Right. And here we have the concept of a, of a sacrament, which is something that works ex opere operato. It works without us. Huh? Now, um, the thing is, of course, for all of these sects, uh, baptism is a sign of an inter of an in of, a, of a, something that happens interiorly. It's just an external sign. We Catholics know that it's an external sign that actually affects what it symbolizes, and that's the key difference between us and them. Um, and uh, but but you know the the early origin, the father of the church said that infant baptism goes back to the apostles. Mm. Right. And uh, many of the early fathers of the church give us a testimony of the, the, the universal practice of infant baptism in the church. 
Yeah. I think the, and a good thing too, brother, is, uh, you know, circumcision. The Jews circumcised the boys at eight days old. Exactly. And, they, and there was big trouble. They didn't. Moses got in big trouble because he didn't circumcise his his boys, and the angel almost killed him. So yeah, we know what happened. It was pretty, yeah. pretty ugly. <laughs> exactly. So uh, someone asks uh, for those who are outside the church, would God give someone outside the church the necessary grace to convert and enter into the church? Well. I'm yeah. glad that somebody asked that, Father. <laughs> now, one of the things, you know, the Jansenists taught that there is no grace outside of the church. The Jansenists were inside the church. I mean, it sounds ironic, but, but they infected the church, pr principally in France, but elsewhere, for the better part of 300 years. But there were, they were bishops, there were priests, you know, all canonically in good standing and so forth. Uh, but one of the Jansenist errors that the church condemned was that there's no grace outside the church. And a lot of people who have sort of parodied Father Feeney or caricatured him have called him a Jansenist. A Jansenist. Now, Father was no Jansenist, and he rejected Jansenism uh, uh, thoroughly on, on precise doctrinal grounds. But one of the things that most contrasts him with the Jansenists was that he talked about how there's so much grace outside the church and what is the purpose of it? Well, to bring people into the church. We know that there's sanctifying grace, and we know that there's actual grace. Actual grace terminates in the performance of an act, either before we're in sanctifying grace, or to get us into sanctifying grace, or keep us in it, or to grow in merit. But those who are outside of the church, of course, get grace every time they hear the truth preached, anytime that the Holy Ghost moves them to assent to this truth, and to inquire about it more. All of this is the Holy Ghost giving that internal testimony that's, that's absolutely necessary for somebody to accept the truths of the faith. So yeah, it's, it, it operates outside the church. Yeah, I mean, our Lord in his mystical body, I mean, it, it, the, 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 the parable of the sower, our Lord is throwing <laughs> lots of seed out there. He's, you know, he's going to the, the, the barren land, to the uh, where the weeds are, to the uh, where the, the shallow soil is, he is not. Uh, uh, um, uh, he's profligate when it comes to these graces and desiring to bring people to salvation. That's important. Um, what would be a good argument, brother, against those who say that the church means <laughs> all Christians, including all the schisms, especially when they emphasize that Protestants are good people, and believe in Christ. <laughs> this, is, this is what I like to call the church of the concentric circles. <laughs> so you've got, you've got the bullseye in the middle, that's the Catholic Church, and then you've got these other circles outside of them, uh, outside of it, and, or you might have the sort of a Venn diagram thing with overlapping circles or whatever. Uh, this is, of course, not the traditional belief, uh, my love, my dove is one, says the Canticle of Canticles. And the church herself at the Council of Florence took that beautiful passage from uh, this love poem of Solomon to one of his wives and gave it a spiritual meaning uh, about our Lord and the church. Now that interpretation of the Canticle of Canticles as in reference to Christ and the church pre-exists the Council of Florence. But the Council of Thorns applied it to, uh, to this uh, mystery of the union of Christ with his church. 
the we, we say in the creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the very unity of the church is at stake when we speak of the church being a sort of conglomerate of other churches. Now, the only sense in which that can be meant is if we distinguish local churches from the universal church. But the local churches, such as the church where, where you are, the diocese where you are, the diocese where I am, these are parts of the, the universal church. Um, so I believe the best argument to this, the best answer to that question, to that objection, is to go through the traditional the theology books where they defend the four marks of the church, focusing especially on the church's unity and her Catholicity, which obviously work together. It's both universal and one, you know, it's one and universal at the same time. So to, and, and the other thing is, that is essentially blasphemous if we take it to its logical conclusions, the presumption of, uh, behind that, that question, not, not the questioner, I know the questioner is asking to the answer, right, to, to this objection, but the objection assumes something blasphemous, which is that the Holy Ghost inspires the uh, Immaculate Conception and also the denial of the Immaculate Conception, the papacy and the denial of the papacy, the Eucharist and the denial of the Eucharist. And you can go on through all of the controverted questions. Right, right. Wonderfully said. Um, this person asks, I was wondering if it was the Second Vatican Council that seems to teach that Christians outside the church are, quote unquote, part of the body of Christ partially. Um, I'm assuming, Father, uh, tell me what you think of this, that this is the sort of the subsisted in thing, you know, the, which... Well, that famous the, word from, from Lumen Gentium, from the... Yeah, yes. Lumen Gentium, you know, uh, I guess if we had three more hours, we could talk about Lumen Gentium and subsisted in, but the church, the, true, the one true church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, um, and... This was a this is a phrase that I think more innocent trees lost their lives to make the books explaining it away than any other theological question in history. Uh, Avery Dulles, in fact, wrote a book on it and gave a very bad answer, which was actually later corrected posthumously in regard to Avery Dulles by uh, the Church, by the the the, uh, the CDF of all of all places in in two thousand and seven, three days after. Um, the traditional mass becomes decriminalized on 7-7 of 07. Right. The church came out, the CDF came out with a, with a document um, basically saying that subsisted in was an emphatic way of saying is. Of course, the confusion still remains. So this, this ecclesiology of the concentric circles that we referred to earlier yes. is still very much with us, Father. But Vatican II didn't explicitly say that Lutherans and Presbyterians and all are part of the Catholic Church. Um, one of the explanations for the whole subsisted in thing was to say, now, bear with me, there is a real mystery here. Every time there's a valid baptism, it's a Catholic baptism. That infant dies uh, prior to the uh, age of reason. We've got a Catholic saint in heaven. Right. His name doesn't show up on any Catholic uh, uh, parish registers. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to have them officially recognized as a Catholic by the church, but if some Presbyterian minister or Lutheran minister or, or evangelical minister baptizes him, he's a Catholic, he's a member of the Catholic Church. It's a conscious acceptance of heresy or schism later in life that leads one outside of the church. Um, so, so, there, so the fact is there are certain 
as the fathers say, elementa ecclesiae, elements of the church that exist outside the church. How is it that the Orthodox have seven valid sacraments? They do, but that exists to pull them into the church, not so that they can be happy outside the church in this extra ecclesial communion. Yeah, and that, that brings back that quotation from St. Augustine, which we began exactly. with. You can have Alleluia outside, you can have Amen, you can have the Trinity. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, regarding uh, the teaching of baptism, what is the church's stance for the unborn lost through abortion or miscarriages? And of course, brother, I'll mention this too. This person writes, I am bothered about this since it doesn't seem to be fair if God does not allow access to heaven for the unborn. And just as a quick note, brother, I'll probably do a... Uh, uh, one of these PowerPoints uh, or a Zoom presentation on, on the notion of uh, the info, uh, <laughs> the limbo of the infants. Because um, God is not being unfair, is he? There's, there's, not, there's nothing unfair. Well, I mean, once we, once we realize that, that's, that eternal salvation is a gratuitous gift, that it's not something that we can merit on our own, that there's no justice involved in god being obliged to give it to us uh I, we realize that it's it's not unfair now uh god is generous and even in so the fact that infants can be uh offered the, the sacrament at all and and go to heaven if they die in that state uh, having been regenerated uh that shows god's goodness and it's just a sheer grace now but if you talk about the unbaptized infants, of course, the traditional teaching is that they could not be saved uh, in that state, yet they were not punished with, with what's called the pena uh, census in hell. Right. The, the, the theologians distinguish between the pena census and the pena domni. The pena domni is the pain of damnation, meaning you, you're not in the beatific vision. The pain of census is the pain of sense, which is the punishment for all actual sin, sins that we voluntarily committed. And when you take that distinction and you, and you say, okay, well, what's the pain of census? What's the pain of Domini without the pain of census? And that is limbo. Right? That, that's, that's what we, in limbo, of course, the word, as you know, Father, means borderlands. We're talking about something on the borderlands of hell. Uh, it's the essential hell. It's theologically, it's hell, but that doesn't sound right to most people because there's no, there's no pain of sense. If you're Dante, uh, this is the one part of hell, by the way, where there's green, green leaves and, and sunlight. Um, there's actually sort of a natural happiness that exists there. It's a natural happiness that is not supernaturally fulfilled. So I don't think there's any injustice there. And there have been all sorts of wonderful speculations by good theologians from St. Thomas Aquinas through the, 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 the other medieval scholastics and the Counter-Reformation, especially the Jesuits. They put a lot of sort of what you might call nice furniture in limbo. Uh, so there, there could be these sort of happiness, these forms of happiness, you know, children seeing their parents. If their parents are in heaven, they, they could see their parents in heaven. Yet they're not experiencing the beatific vision which is a gratuitous gift uh, for those who have been given uh, uh, faith and baptism in this life. Right. So I, I don't think it's unfair. I think it's necessary to defend the traditional teaching on limbo. 
because it was the denial of limbo that people like Karl Rahner and other modernist theologians used to deny full stop the necessity of the sacraments, and in fact, the necessity of everything, the, the supernatural order, faith, you name it. Wonderfully put, brother. Uh, just you, a couple more real quick. Uh, St. Dismas, how do you explain, someone asked about him, baptism of desire. Saint, of course, it hadn't been promulgated yet, baptism, yeah. but the fact is, is that how, how would you explain St. Dismas there? So, so Saint Dismas, on the cross? well, I think it's easy to use the thief, so we stole it. Uh, but uh, aside from that, uh, the St. Dismas was, uh, according to St. Augustine, St. Dismas was baptized. Now, that was his opinion. He did, I don't think he had the baptismal certificate. Uh, it was speculation on his part. But, you know, other fathers of the church point out that St. Dismas died in the old dispensation. That might sound strange, but uh, Pentecost hadn't happened. And according to the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the universe, the, and, and giving the general consensus on this among all the Catholic theologians, the law of baptism was not promulgated until Pentecost. Pentecost is sort of the church's coming out. It's, it's sort of the church's confirmation, the church's reaching age and becoming public. And that's when the necessity of baptism was promulgated. So uh, there's the new law in full effect. So St. Dismas dies essentially in the old dispensation. And when our Lord said, this day you will be with me in paradise, he didn't mean this day, this Friday, you're going to be with me in heaven, because we know that the gates of, of heaven were not opened until Ascension Thursday. This day was when our Lord went to Harrow Hell. He went into the Limbus Patrum, that other limbo, the limbo of the fathers, to preach to those that were in prison, St. Peter says, and to, and to get them ready for the ascension, when they would ride up with him into heaven. So, um, so I, I, I think that's, that's another explanation of, of St. Two, two, you know, St. Augustine's, he was already baptized. And of course, the fact that he died before the necessity of baptism was promulgated. Right. Um, someone asked a, a kind of a technical question, or at least a, um, a historical one, perhaps. When Father Feeney was um, sort of confronted and, you know, asked to go to Romans, was, was he given the traditional sort of multiple letters of warning that there was sort of a process here? I mean, even Martin Luther was given years before they went after him with an excommunication. But you said in a matter of months, it seemed, they went from, um, I guess, just, just go ahead and excommunicating. Uh, were, was there the traditional warnings or the proper procedures, do you think, gone through by the Holy See regarding this matter? Well, not being a canonist, I am not going to give, a I'm not going to pretend to give a definitive answer. If you read the correspondences between Father Leonard and Cardinal Pizzardo, and those correspondences are reproduced in the book, They Fought the Good Fight by Brother Thomas Mary Sennett. It's available on the Catholicism.org store site. Um, that, in that book, and if, if you read the, the, the communications, Cardinal Pizzardo looks like he's trying to make the thing break down. It does not look like somebody who wants to make this thing work. I know now something that has never been known before uh, recent months, uh, and that is that Pius XII did not want Father Feeney excommunicated, and he intervened personally in the case at a few junctions. I know this because the Pius XII era files that were under the secrecy of the Holy Office have been lifted 
and are available for scholars to research. And somebody working for us has been plowing through them and translating key documents. Uh, Pius XII personally put his handwriting in the file to, to push, excuse me, Father, to push uh, for uh, a greater leniency and so forth. It looks to me like those who were responsible in, in the CDF or in the Holy Office at the time were trying to make the thing fail. And I think the reason is because there was this connection with the Jesuits and possibly with the Archdiocese of Boston, but mostly with the Jesuits, keep in mind how powerful they were, that they wanted this priest to be shut up. And the best way to do it was to find some sort of procedural way to do it so that the issues actually didn't have to be aired out and it could be done quietly. We've, we've often said, and I know you must have heard this from the sisters at St. Anne's house, this was, this was discipline over doctrine. You know, they, they, they didn't want to address the doctrinal issues. They made it all disciplinary. So not being a canon, it's interesting because we have a canon lawyer who's helping us with some of this research. And I would certainly like to ask him at some point, because uh, we have an active case right now uh, against our own bishop. <laughs> so when that's we'll all done. We'll get into that tonight, brother. I don't yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> when all that's done, it's par for the course, Father. When all that's done, we will hopefully uh, have this gentleman um, go into some of the canonical issues so that I can answer this question intelligently instead of babbling. There you go. Um, all right, so I think we've reached a point that we uh, uh, can maybe end with a prayer. For those people who asked a couple more questions, um, maybe uh, as I look at them later, maybe next week I could sort of go through some of them. Um, but I want to thank Brother for being uh, on our Zoom presentation and for really giving us a, a fuller picture, um, especially of the individuals involved and their real love for the church. Uh, Father Feeney, Brother Francis, and also Sister Catherine, people who fought for the faith. And his brother said, well, they had their finger on the issue. You know, there might be debates about baptism, of blood baptism, of desire, implicit, explicit. There's a lot of stuff here. But I can tell you one thing. They were 100% right. This is the issue. Um, and it's an issue that obviously, because it has been sort of lost in the minds of many of the faithful, uh, we've lost almost all missionary zeal for the most part in the membership of the church. So I thank Brother for you know, maybe returning a little bit of that missionary zeal for our listeners. And of course, the work that he does uh, shows that he feels compelled, <laughs> as we all should, to bring people into the ark of salvation. So uh, we'll begin, we'll end with a prayer, rather, in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I'll give you all a blessing through the session of our Blessed Mother, Good Saint Joseph, your guardian angels and patron saints, Benedictio de Potentis, Patris et Fidii, et Spiritus Sanctuary et Supervos, et Maniat Semper. Amen. Thank you, brother. Hope to see you soon, okay? Thank you so much, Father. I look forward to seeing you. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.